This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Josh Hutchins grew up beside the mountain streams of Sydney, Australia, fishing for trout and anything else he could cast a hook to. Since then, he has fly fished in over 30 countries and started his own guiding and travel business, Aussie Fly Fisher. Josh runs a number of learn to fly fish courses and has also established the Aussie Fly Fisher Youth Academy to help raise young fly fishermen and build a positive community within the sport. An incredibly talented photographer, he is regularly featured in leading publications such as National Geographic, The Fly Fish Journal, and Fly Life Magazine. In this episode of Anchor, Josh and I discuss the impacts of social media on today's generation of anglers, Murray Cod, and Glorious Bastards. just want to thank my listener right now for putting up with my audio quality today. As usual, I haven't learned my lesson yet and I've blown yet another system by plugging it into my wall here in Australia. So we are back to the backup snowball mic. And Josh has come down from, Josh, where did you come down from today? Uh, The Blue Mountains. Is that where we fished that day? Yeah, we did go for some trout in the Blue Mountains there. Um, The Blue Mountains National Park, I'm told, is the most visited tourist attraction of Australia. I guess it's the national park that sits just behind Sydney and um, yeah plenty of beautiful escarpments and beautiful scenery and lots of people like to visit it. Now where are the snowy mountains then in relation? Snow mountains uh, despite popular belief we do have snow in Australia Mm. and they sit around five hours south of Sydney if you're going to drive. Yeah I was really surprised when I looked into the snowy mountains and googled images of them it's not just a sprinkle of snow. They're quite impressive. Like our tallest mountain, Mount Kosciuszko, 
essentially doesn't look that impressive and a five-year-old kid could probably climb that trail to the top. It's very well-worn path, but uh, I guess it's not impressive because it's just a rounded hill at the top, but there are some impressive mountains in Australia and and they are covered with snow for a good portion of winter and there's ski fields and everything there. Now, where were you where were you born and raised? I was born in Sydney, um, South Sydney. We lived in a suburb called Carilla, which is close to Cronulla, a popular beach place, I guess. Uh, when I was about five or six, we moved out to the Blue Mountains for a year and then we slowly progressed west and I've spent most of my life growing up in Bathurst, which is a country town of about 40,000. Okay, yeah, because whenever I hear about Bathurst, it's usually farmers or cattle ranchers. Does that sound about right? Yeah, like Bathurst on a world scale is probably most known for a race. We have a V8 supercar race there once a year, the Bathurst 1000. And these days there is quite a few cars involved, but it used to be the Holden and Ford showdown. And I guess it was where 100,000 bogans would sort of overtake the town for one week. You have to define bogan. I posted about a bogan recently, and people were like, what are you talking about? So please, from the horse's mouth, explain your vernacular. There's plenty of levels of bogan, and I think a true Australian should have at least a little bit of that in them. But I guess the closest thing would be maybe a redneck. People would sort of explain that as. But it's just sort of the difference. Like some people would say in Sydney that... Australians sound like maybe they sound English or something like that. Whereas the further you go west, I guess it becomes you know less yeah. audible. Um, <laughs> you can easily have a conversation with someone that's hey, am I? Yeah, good. How you going? Yeah, not too bad. <laughs> yeah, what are you doing you know, down there? Yeah. And like the average person would not know what that meant. Yeah, but, I have no idea what they're saying. Yeah. You know, What's the difference between a yabo and a bogan? I guess it's somewhat in the same, really. It is. Yeah, but. I mean, that's the joy of Australia too. There is, every country has slang and we have a lot of that as well. And I think sometimes for us, it's just about the tone. Like a lot of people, I, I, you know, I could say, hey, April, how are you going? I'm asking you a question. How are you today? Yeah. Um, but how are you going in Australia means everything. It's like, how are you going? As in, how are you? That's a bit how are you going? As in, I don't like that. Or like, <laughs> check that out, how are you going? Like, how are you going? It took me forever to figure this out. And Charles would be like, how are you going? And I was like, how, how am I doing or where am I going? What, yeah. like, which, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Uh, but then, yeah, and then he'd say, oh, it's, you know, it's a bit how you going. Yeah. Like, what does that, what does that mean? And, and a bit how you going could be good or bad at times. Yeah. It's, it sort of depends um, how it's put out there. And yeah, and I, I think that's quite funny. Like sometimes if I'm overseas, like you can happily play on that if, if you just don't really want people to understand what you're saying. What about um, fair dinkum? Fair dinkum. I guess you're just agreeing with someone. Fair dinkum. You know, or like you're acknowledging something like fair dinkum, mate. So why is a woman, uh, when, when you call a woman a mole, which I know you would never do, but why is that so horrifying? A mole, I get, it's just a derogatory term for a lady. But it's like the, mo- the most derogatory term. Yeah. I mean, I, it's worse than the C word, I hear. No, I wouldn't say it's worse than the C word. Oh, I but guess it depends on who you ask. I've got girlfriends here who are like, you can call me the C word any day of the week, but do not call me a mole. It's, it's somewhere like Sheila. Like Sheila oh. is a very Aussie term, I guess, in a sense for a lady that's somewhat derogatory these days. It's, it's a lady's name. I have a friend, her, um, her first name was actually Sheila, but she didn't like it. So she changed her name to her middle name. Um, and one day she was with a friend in the car and the police pulled her up and pulled out the lies and said, Sheila, do you know how fast you were driving back there? 
And the guy that she was, the friend that she was travelling with, wanted to knock this copper out. But he just didn't know. We, we just never knew her first name was Sheila because in Australia having your name as Sheila is like a weird sort of almost derogatory term for a lady. Oh, that's so strange. Yeah, yeah. so... <laughs> Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's funny that way. <laughs> now, you're still really young, though. So a lot of this is, is probably old school terminology. How, how old are you, Josh? Uh, I'm 33. Yeah. But uh, I mean, it, to be fair, a lot of it, people that grow up in the country or outside of the city would tend to be exposed to a little bit more of those Aussieanisms. Quite often, people that have grown up in the city, you don't hear as much of that. It's just not in a little bit of a sad way. It's been lost. But out in the country, I mean... With all our guides, you know, we go to plenty of different properties and farmers and, uh, you know, you've got to learn to talk the lingo and that's basically, you know, has there been any rain? How are the stock doing? You know, is there any grass in the paddock? And make sure you're kind of leaning on something at the time. You know, it's this sense of like, you've got to be leaning against the tractor or the fence post. And <laughs> Oh, you mean physically leaning? Yeah, you know, we always joke that, you know, like I joke with our guys that this is how you connect with farmers. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, mate, yeah. <laughs> it's a ton of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's always a lot of yeah's, you know, it's like everyone's agreeing with each other, I guess. <laughs> That's true. And sometimes it'll just go, well, not silent, but there's just this moment of like 30 <laughs> seconds where there's this lull in words and everyone just going, yeah, 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 mate. And they yeah. nod their heads and kind of look down, yeah. It's yeah. Just <laughs> but it's just, it's somewhat that, it's that old school bonding, if you will, that farmers, you know, they love. They like that sense of if someone's coming on their property, they like to know who they are. They like to know that, you know, they feel comfortable with them and can have a good chat to them about the weather, even though we've talked about the weather every single time we've gone there. And yeah, there's a lot of great Aussie farmers out there and, you know, we like a lot of our fishing we might do is on their private property, and we really appreciate them letting us be there. And yeah, you got to have a lot of that year sort of chat. But it's so funny because now the more I travel, and you know, being in northern British Columbia, it's the same thing. We'll all be around camp at my place, and we'll have the same moments where we're all—I don't know if we're leaning against something, but we all have beer in our hand, and we're going, "Yep, yep," or you know, "Yep, you betcha," "Yep, yep," right? Yep. And there's that same kind of—I uh, guess it's just. A, where you're at or in Newfoundland. I mean, my family's from Newfoundland. And so we were deep in, in Spaniards Bay area yep. and in the Maritimes, especially when you go further into these little remote villages, mm-hmm. you don't have a clue what they're saying. <laughs> you get completely lost. And then the same thing, they'll kind of zone out with years by year. Yeah. It just depends on where you go. Right. Oh, totally. Totally. So were you, would you have called yourself a city boy back then? Or would you have considered yourself a country, a country guy? Yeah, I, most of my upbringing was in the country, and I guess where you grow up sometimes deems the hobbies or things you you take on. And I mean, I always love the outdoors. Like I can remember, as you know, to my youngest memories, Dad would take us camping. We'd go either down the south coast somewhere in one of the national parks there, or we'd head out to Hilland, a place out near Bathurst, and and just go camping and and be along the river there, or you know, ride our little push bikes through the water. And I just absolutely loved being outdoors and there was that sense of you know the country living was for me did your parents fish yeah dad dad did a little bit of fishing uh we'd do a, a yearly trip up to fraser island and you know we'd absolutely love it up there and he, i guess he did a bit of beach fishing up there and i remember all the fish stories but i don't remember him ever catching much sorry dad <laughs> but it was enough to kind of put probably the fishing bug in me and i you know i'm, I'm one of four i've got um an older brother a younger brother and a younger sister and and I really was the only one that kind of took that fishing bug, I guess. Um, there was little phases where my siblings would come along and fish with me or whatever, but 
I, yeah, just if we we're on holidays and there was water, I just wanted to sit there with, it didn't matter if it was a hand line or a rod or what it was, I just wanted to fish and I, I mostly, I guess, wouldn't catch things because it's just not really knowing what I was doing, but I, I loved to fish and, and, and that's from a really early age that I can remember that. Were you guys trout fishing? Initially, I guess it was probably salt water if we went on a holiday somewhere. When I was about five, my parents had a caravan that we kept in a park down on the Ovens River. Uh, which you caught your first Murray Cod in. And so from when I was about five, we'd go down there, and that was probably my first introduction to trout. And when I was about eight, we moved to a property that was on a river called the Cox's River, which is um, one of the main rivers flowing east of the mountains. Um, it fills Sydney's water supply, and that had trout in it as well. So we, I think when I was eight, we had a motorbike, we had a Series 2 Land Rover that my brother got for his 10th birthday and we'd drive down the back and go fishing in the river there and there was a little lake as well. So trout was definitely the first thing that I remember being really attached to in the fishing scene. And yeah, like if we were on holidays and there was a trout river, I just didn't want to do anything else. Truthfully, that was probably the most surprising thing for me moving here was assuming that all you guys did was saltwater fish and then realizing when I got here that there was this enormous trout culture and history of trout. Mm. Do you think that you were more into fishing for trout because of just how incredible trout are? Or do you think it was a history of how many anglers before you fished for trout? I mean, I was really, really obsessed with trout for a long time. And, you know, I still love trout, but I, you know, I just I love the diversity of the fishing now. But I, I do think there was this weird sort of scenario in Australia in these areas where, yeah, people were just really obsessed with trout. And and for me, I guess, being, you know, on this property that we had at that time, I was sort of eight to about 12 when we lived there, the fish that I could catch that was available was trout. And I, I really liked it and I really liked catching them. I really didn't, you know, it took a long time to start even thinking about natives. And that was kind of some of the system really, because we've had a lot of these rivers and lakes that essentially were too warm for trout, but trout would survive there in certain amounts and, you know, they'd come and go, we'd have a drought, they'd fall away and that sort of thing. But people really worked hard to keep trout and it, you know, there was a point in time where I really kind of thought, well, you know, there's certain rivers and systems and lakes that do well with trout, but there's others why I just didn't understand why people were trying so hard to have trout there when Murray Cod and Golden Perch and all these other fish thrive there even better and they're our native species. I am still dumbfounded by it. I do not understand it, and I'm hoping that you can help explain. Yeah, and uh, it's, it is that sort of cultural shift, I think, worldwide in fly fishing that, I mean, I'm not sure what the stats are now, but I, I mean, a fly line company told me that 90% of their lines were sold to trout anglers and 10% everything else. And so that sort of shows a little bit of the state of fly fishing worldwide and what people like to catch. And trout is still a very big factor in that when it comes to fly fishing. And you wouldn't think in 2019 that when you tell a random person, oh, we're going fly fishing in the saltwater, that they're just going to be looking at you weirdly. But sometimes people still do. They associate fly fishing with trout and salmon. It's a weird thing. Like, I love to catch a lot of different species these days, but I, I have no problem in saying that I was heavily indoctrinated by that trout sort of mentality for a long time. And, and I've often kind of wondered, and I've very sort of openly written about that, that the I guess the enjoyment of catching other species and finding you know what's right on your doorstep and and catching different things and I think there's a sense of just you know there's a lot of if it will you know fly fishing clubs and media and all these sort of outlets I guess would promote trout as the thing to catch while you're fly fishing these same people quite often would love to go 
fish in soft plastics maybe for Flathead. They'd love to throw lures for Murray Cod. But weirdly, it's taken a little bit of time to kind of switch those species on to fly. And, you know, I've never, you know, sort of down-talked any of these people that have done these other species on fly for a long time. But, I, I you know, like in they were innovating catching these other species on fly. But I actually kind of feel that the game changer was social media. And I know a lot of people would maybe try and take different credit for that. But if I look at when a lot of people in Australia started to be interested to catch other fish on fly, it was kind of around the time that social media became strong and Facebook, Instagram, whatever. And I sort of feel like people were probably in their world enjoying catching trout, enjoying going on their trout trips and all this sort of thing. But then suddenly this social media thing came along and the information was brought to them on a daily basis. They didn't need to... Um, I, I used to say very openly that if I got a Fly Life magazine, I would literally skip the saltwater pages. Like, I just did not care. Why? Um, Do you think it was boat-related? Because you always associate saltwater fishing typically around here with a boat? I just didn't have an interest. And this is maybe controversial as well, but the other side was I. some of the people that were telling me I should saltwater fish were just not people I wanted to be like. Um, I found that saltwater had this really weird edge to it in Australia where people were more concerned with knowing who did it first than actually enjoying mm-hmm. the saltwater element of what they were doing. For me, fly fishing is about a good experience. It's about doing something that's memorable, that you're going to enjoy with friends, that you do on your time off. It's not about a pissing competition of who did it first. I'm not, I'm not really a competition guy. I'm not really an IGFA guy. I'm not really any of that sort of thing. And so I sort of personally saw saltwater as this sort of competition within the hobby that I didn't really want to be a part of. And I know that's sort of a weird element to say, and probably some people would listen to that and think, oh, well, you jerk, you know, whatever. Once again, we're going back to who did it first. But for me, that's the truth. Like I sort of saw this weird element in saltwater fly fishing, and it's still a little bit there, which is annoying, where some guy goes and does something, he catches a permit, who knows where, and there will usually be a comment on that thing saying, oh, yeah, but so-and-so did that first in 98. And I was like, nobody cares. Nobody asked. This guy went fishing, he caught a fish, and he enjoyed it. He posted the photo because that's part of his enjoyment, let's say. It's, he wasn't really asking to who, for who did it first, and I know that's maybe a weird side tangent, but I, when I started to do saltwater... I just really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it being different. I really enjoyed, I like, you know, trying new things. I didn't really feel like I needed to ask someone's permission to do it. Mm -hmm. I just kind of wanted to do it in my own time. And I've like, I'm absolutely obsessed with anything that's just fly fishing at all these days, whether it's saltwater, freshwater, whatever species, I definitely want to catch it. Except carp. We don't like carp. Just going to put that <laughs> in there. I caught my first carp with Josh, just so everyone knows. I caught my yeah. first carp with Josh. And, I begrudgingly uh, <laughs> let her catch it. And uh, I guess you're supposed to legally kill them, right? Well, this is not true, and I have checked this recently. It's encouraged that they're removed from the system, but there is nowhere in the New South Wales laws you have to kill a fish. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because yeah. I heard I heard varying feedback on yeah, that. I rang the... Uh, Head of New South Wales Fisheries to check that. <laughs> well, I wanted to let you know that I am determined to learn how to cook them, and I am desperate to get back out and catch some more. Because when we were fishing with Kenny, he was saying there was a way to, to bleed them out and, and really be able to make the meat work. So that's another day, but it is high on my list. Yeah. And so you don't like carp, continue. <laughs> no, that's okay. For the record, 
carp are a fish that is just so readily available in Australia and have somewhat ruined a lot of our river systems. Um, so you'll find in Australia that people either really love catching them or they really detest them, and I somewhat seem to be the latter. But I've grown, I've grown to, you know, they are fun to catch on fly. I'll give them that, and we have a lot of them. So if anyone likes to catch carp on fly, Australia is your place. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, like carp was probably one of the fish, I would say it was the second fish to trout that I would have caught on fly. We were down in Canberra, Lake Burley Griffin is the lake uh, just below Parliament House there. And I think I was 12. We were at some fishing event down there, 12 or 13. Actually, I would have been 13 uh, because I remember I'd not long learnt to um, fly fish and I'd caught a couple of trout. And I'd seen these huge fish swimming around the lake and I just got so excited thinking they were massive brown trout. And then, so I you know, got my fly rod and then I worked out that they're actually carp and I was just massively disappointed. I was like, well, let's give it a go. And we ended up catching a few and even funny enough then, like I caught a few and they fight really well. They feed like, you know, any other fish on the flats would feed. And But funny enough, I still, it was ingrained in me that, you know, carp were the enemy and um, just growing up in an area where they were always the pest fish, I guess. So I, I have caught plenty of carp on fly and I do enjoy it every now and then. I just somewhat play hardball and pretend that I hate it all the time. <laughs> and I actually probably the most enjoyable carp moment in recent was that one you caught that day because... I could tell that you really enjoyed that. And, um, <laughs> I loved it. And to be fair, that fish, like it was in a clear water section of the river. Sight fishing to it. We sight fished. It ate like a trigger fish or a blue bass or a permit or something like that would have eaten. It, um, you know. But, and then it just ripped across the pool. Oh, yeah. That was one of my favorite fish, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was the most disappointing part that we'd stopped talking about Murray Cod by then because you caught this carp. <laughs> So. Let's talk about Marie Cod. And, and just back to your point, though, about social media and people, um, you know, feeling like they have to point out who caught it first. Do you think that a lot of that is because a lot of the younger generation is so unaware of our history that a lot of the maybe the older generation feels like they need to remind them? Mm. Yeah, there is this sort of funny disconnect, I guess, of the generations with social media. And uh, like I sort of see that, yeah, you'll get... Um, guys saying, look this, we've done it first, you know, we're the best, blah, blah, blah. And then somebody that maybe did it 10 years ago but never really talked about it will think, well, this is my time to shine, I should mention this now. And then obviously it starts to be a little bit of this generational war. But uh, social media, people can love it or hate it, but it obviously is very present in everyone's life and it's very much here to stay. I can't see it going away anytime soon. But... It does have that negative effect sometimes where people can, you know, there's no vetting process. You can say whatever you want. You can put it out there and um, and you'll find that people have been in the industry for a long time. Maybe they've written for magazines their entire life and that was their one sort of voice or they had a fishing show or something like that. But sometimes you'll find these guys actually have zero impact on social media at all. And so it sort of becomes, it depends, I guess, on their personality of how they handle that. But so I do see that some of these guys can see that as a way of just not feeling in control anymore and then they kind of aggressively come out with it. Other guys might just sort of say, oh, hey, you know, depending on what the post is they see, they're like, oh, well, that's actually was done at this stage and it's a great place. And I'm not sort of knocking back anyone for setting the record straight at all. I just sort of found that I personally didn't like that people were just putting up a, you know, a post of a fish and it didn't really have any agenda at all, but then suddenly being hacked for like catching this fish kind of thing. And social media is just such a great way of getting a message across these days. And 
weirdly, I do see some guys that still run a business that still maybe have a play in the fishing industry. They, it's almost like they don't like it, so they reject it and they downplay it as in like somebody is a bad fisherman because they're known via Instagram or known via Facebook. Well, that's not really the case either, really. Like um, just because 20 years ago, the only way that you could get your fishing news across was quarterly in a fishing magazine. Or speaking at fly fishing clubs, teaching. TV show. Television and maybe radio. Mm. on occasion that was really the only way to do it wasn't it yeah and like which are all still great ways to get fly fishing media i believe but at the same time you can't ignore social media you can't ignore instagram you can't ignore facebook these sort of things have done i mean they've grown the sport a lot i believe like i have so many people that come to maybe one of our fly fishing courses or something like that and they will say oh i've followed your page for three years and i'm intrigued by the fact that you catch these certain species on fly. And it's quite often not trout. Like it might be, they might be an avid Murray Cod fisherman who throws uh, lures around, but then they've done that for a long time and they'd like another challenge and they're like, wow, these guys are doing that on fly regularly. I'd like to try that. Mm-hmm. So I kind of look at that as like, that's cool. That That's how the message was brought to this guy that he somewhat just, you know, followed along our Instagram in the background and eventually was like, well, I'd like to try this fly fishing thing. These guys are having fun they're doing it in a different way and I'd like to give it a go. Whereas I guess other people look at social media as like, oh, you know, it's just beating your chest and everyone's putting stuff out there and making their own claims. And yeah, that's certainly present as well. But at the same time, I believe, I don't know, social media is one of those things that nobody gets training for. Well, some people probably do, but I I see there's an element of, you know, it's like vent your own thoughts daily and all this kind of thing. And I mean, personally, I just... I don't engage with negativity on social media. Like that's just, I just feel personally that's never going to go anywhere. It's like a political war from two sides and nobody's ever going to change their mind because they saw a Facebook thread with two different sides battling it out. And so I somewhat kind of take that to a fishing point of view as well, that if someone is fighting back and forth on Facebook, I don't personally feel the problem is going to be solved on Facebook. So I just don't engage in that negativity, I guess. But um, at the same time... And I, you're right, by the way, because I have, learned, <laughs> I have learned that you may be completely in the right, but it doesn't matter how much you try to get your point across. Even mm. if you're doing it eloquently and you're doing it kindly, you, it's still 99% of the time doesn't work. So mm. I've decided also recently that I'm just going <laughs> to keep my mouth shut. I can't win. So why yeah. am I bothering wasting my time? Especially as a mom, you know, you're... We're looking at your daughter being like, I have so many other things to do with you right now, and I'm dealing with this dickhead. You just Anyway, so let that be known. I'm keeping my mouth shut. Have fun. Go to town on it, people. Go to yeah. town. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. No, that's fine. And I, I think it's a good conversation to have because there is that brand of person out there that feels that their negativity is worth hearing. And I, I just don't personally feel like a negative voice is worth hearing in that sense. One of the things that I really like about social media, and look, I have a million trillion things I can say about social media that <laughs> I don't like, but what my direction is with social media, especially now, is I want to show people that there are other species to fish for. Mm. Steelhead fisheries can't necessarily handle a, a lot of pressure or any more pressure than they already have. Mm. And if it's just as much fun, or it can be as much fun to go to go ice fishing or go bass fishing or go fish for small trout and small streams. And these are fisheries that can handle the pressure. I think that it's part of our role with having a voice to, to educate people that they can go 
um, whether it's fly fishing or conventional fishing, mm. it doesn't matter. But they can go target these fish and have just as good of a time. Uh, yeah, and I agree. Like, from an Australian point of view, trout on mainland Australia, the water that they live in, it's not expanding, it's shrinking. We're having hotter summers, we're having longer summers, and we definitely still have great trout fishing, like areas, as we've mentioned, like the Snow Mountains, the Blue Mountains, Southern Highlands, Northeast Victoria, these sort of places have great trout fishing. But it tends to be shrinking towards, you know, having better fishing around that kind of spring, autumn, winter period and not so much in the summer. Like, as a kid, I remember having great fishing in the summer. We'd have big summer storms consistently. Uh, you know, you'd have these great mayfly hatches and you'd go out there on a summer night. It was warm and humid, but the trout were really happy because there was plenty of water in the system. These days, I guess we manage that a little bit more, whereas there's certain fisheries we barely touch over the summer months. And unfortunately, that just seems to be shrinking. And, and that's not only lack of rain and heat. That's somewhat like, I guess, you know, we've been somewhat flogging this land for a while with a whole bunch of farming practices that silt up the land. There's erosion. There's plenty of rivers that almost all of them that don't have any fence in. So cattle and all that can erode the banks and rivers that were once six foot deep are now two foot at most. And trout just don't thrive in that water, especially over summer. So from our point of view, and even a very honestly, a business point of view, like, you know, we we run a fly fishing business. We want to take people fly fishing. We need something to do in the summer. And, you know, quite often we'll run trips like maybe to New Zealand or Argentina or something like that in those hotter periods. But at the same time, we have excellent fishing back home for things like our native fish, like Murray cod, golden perch. I mean, even carp are very readily available. Uh, Australian bass, and, and not saltwater. I make that clear. They're not native. Yeah, carp are not native. <laughs> But there are these other things that can be caught and people just need to know that they would enjoy them. Murray cod's been interesting. Um, I asked a gentleman, Rod Harrison, you obviously know of, where he thought uh, the first Murray cod on fly may have been caught. And I can't remember the exact date he told me, but it was a, a gentleman by the name of Kevin Lawton, I believe, in Orange. And he believes that he caught one by accident trying to catch trout in the Lachlan River below Wyangla Dam. Kevin also doesn't happen to be on any social media forums constantly telling people about this moment that occurred, I might put out there. But he, you know, may have caught the first one on fly. There's probably plenty of other guys that have done so as well and just not thought to mention it because at the time they probably thought, oh, Murray caught on fly. Gee, that was a bit of a distraction. Nobody cares. Whereas these days, Murray cod on fly has become like a, quite a popular thing and it's growing quite rapidly, which is awesome because it's a fish that thrives over the warmer months. I mean, they still, when we get to that really hot period, um, February, late January, it's still not amazing fishing then when we have those really hot days. And at the moment, you know, there's been a few fish kills around the place due to poor water management and things like that. And, and just the fact that we're in a drought. But at the same time, it is a fish that is extremely exciting to catch. They eat top water. They'll, you know, I've seen them demolish full-grown ducks off the water. I've seen them eat two-foot lizards off the water surface. I've seen them eat other Murray cod that I've been hooked onto and engulf them at my feet. I've been completely saturated by them eating a top water fly at my feet. You tell this to anyone around the world and they're just like, let me catch this fish now. They're my favourite species in Australia. They're my favourite species too. They're and it's taking a long time for people to kind of get that message. And they're only in Australia. It's completely endemic to the, the Murray-Darling Basin of Australia. There are some places where they've been, I guess, stocked around elsewhere, but it's an endemic fish. It's our most iconic endemic fish of Australia. And I, I'm passionate about people knowing about that and 
fly fishermen even locally, you know, doing that. You know, we st- I caught my first Murray cotton fly, um, it would be about six years ago, actually. And I, I've told this, I've written about the story before. And I'd, I, um, when I was um, in a previous life, I'd tell people I had a legitimate job. And I um, used to work as a, uh, a food safety manager for a company in Australia. And um, one of the guys I worked with when we were in Bathurst, he would come in on a Monday after the weekend and show me these photos of like 40, 50 pound Murray cod that he caught in the river right next to my town. And, you know, like I'm an idiot for ignoring that. I'm happy to acknowledge that. Um, And I would show him photos of, you know, the two to four pound trout that I caught. And neither of us were probably connected in that sense of being like, oh, cool, look at your big cod. Oh, great, you caught some trout. Like there was this sense of appreciation that we both fished. But there was just one day where I literally asked him, I was like, do you think they would eat a fly, a fish that size? And his response being, you know, what, like a nymph? I was like, no, no, like a big fly. He's like, well, I don't know. So I actually said to him, I was like, can I come out fishing with you? Because I, I did actually go out by myself once. And then I said to him, could I go with you and see what you do on lure? So I went with him and I actually caught one that day. Um, and I was very gutted because I didn't get a photo of it. I had it on the bank and I sort of had it holding it there. And I thought, well, I don't want to drag it up the bank because that's just not something I'd want to do. So I left it in the water and I'm calling out to him from the other side of the river and he eventually came around and Murray Cod, if you just kind of give them a little bit of leeway, we'll go into this sort of crocodile role and he popped the fly and swam off. So, I mean, my first Murray Cod on fly, I never got a photo of. But I just, from that point onwards, I just, the obsession just completely grew and I just kind of realised that I was the perfect example of someone that fly fishes so much that had the opportunity to fish around the world in so many different locations and I was ignoring this absolutely epic fish on my doorstep. And so I think I've just kind of made it, you know, my mission to like just let people know about this fish and how enjoyable it is and how enjoyable it can be to catch on fly. And thank you for doing that because (laughs) I moved here, what, five years ago, I think. Yeah. And when I got here, there were just a handful of you guys. At that point, I think you were, you were into it. There were two other guys who were like, you really have to try (laughs) this out. And I was speaking at a trout club when all of this came to fruition. Yeah. And there were probably, I don't know, 80 people there. And they were like, nah, nah. And um, I just assumed that maybe they weren't that great. Mm. Because to be in a room of 80 people and 78 <laughs> of them are saying, don't, you know, don't waste your time, look at this trout. Yeah. I figured maybe I was missing something. But I was wrong. They are yeah. the most impressive animal. Oh, yeah. know that, I mean, if we had something like that in our backyard in, in BC that was indigenous to our rivers, mm. I just can't imagine anybody scoffing at them or not being willing to give them a try. Yeah, it's, I mean... People often ask, you know, what is it like? I guess it's, I wouldn't, from what I, I haven't caught a muskie. From what I know of a muskie, they're not as hard to catch as a muskie. I would say um, they probably sit somewhere between muskie and pike in terms of some days they can be really difficult. Some days they can be quite easy. And it sort of depends where you go, the time, I guess, who you're fishing with in a sense too, to what the catch rate might be. Sometimes they're that sort of fish where you just feel like, is there anything in the river? And then the next day, you get 20 really amazing topwater hits, and you're like, wow, I never want to catch anything else ever again. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can be that sort of fish. And even, I mean, I took some guys recently. I think in three days, we probably had about 50 Murray cod eat their fly. And one day, we didn't catch a fish. So it's just sort of putting in people's perspective that you might go out one day and not catch a Murray cod and think, oh, these are impossible, they're horrible. But, I mean, we just had one of the most amazing trips, and one of those days we didn't catch fish. Mm-hmm. They are that sort of fish that can shut down. They can be, you know, bass are a little bit like that as well. And, I mean, uh, 
Murray Cotter, kind of like a largemouth bass times 10. That's sort That's of the easiest, of. easiest way to explain them. You like, know what else they remind me of? Or Dorado. Like yeah. Golden Dorado. Yeah. They kind of remind me of that. Like that mixed with a bass. I was just in Argentina a couple of weeks ago and I, I you know, explaining Murray Cotter to those guys, I just say it's our Golden Dorado. Like mm. this is our Golden Dorado. And people are starting to get that in Australia now. And, and like I say, there's plenty of guys that have been doing that before me and, um, and credit to them. And it's just, I feel like it's in the last few years though, that I've seen like a big influx of people taking it on, taking it on. And I think that's really cool. Like I, I, I just want to see people enjoying that fish and I don't want to see people feeling like they can't go fishing because it's, you know, it's a hot day in December and, you know, their regular trout stream just doesn't seem so inspiring at the time when, you know, maybe half an hour further down the road is some amazing Murray cod fishing. And I think there's that element of predator fish becoming quite popular too. Like there's a lot of, when you think of those fish around the world, I mean, what's in that category? Probably like arapaima. Um, I mean, even taman is probably a little bit in that category, even though it's considered a trout. Golden Dorado, as you mentioned, musky, pike. And I, like I've, I've said it, like Murray cod should be on that list. Like they're that sort of fish that eat so impressively. They grow to a monstrous size and they look beautiful. Do you think it would be worth it for somebody from North America to travel all the way here just to fish for Murray cod? Definitely. Like, and it's, it's kind of weird. Like this year is probably, we've had a good mix of, local Australian clients and international clients coming to fish this year and previous years. But I would say in previous years, we actually had more international clients fishing for them than Australians as, as part of our clientele, mm. which sort of suggested to me, like I'd get people ring up and like, oh, and I, I'd get excited. Like I've heard of Murray Cod, I want to catch one. I saw some, you know, YouTube clip and these things look amazing. Can I catch one? I'm like, oh, this is so good. This guy gets it. And then for a long time, we just didn't get that many Australian clients because I think they were probably just like, oh, that's down the road. And I, you know, maybe that same sort of element that you said that in a room of 80 fly fishermen, nobody said they wanted to do it, which is strange. Whereas now I'm finding a lot more Australians um, really keen to come and catch them. And, and I'm finding guys that are ringing us up that are just like, hey, thinking of coming to Sydney, but I saw that Murray Cod, so that's the main thing I want to do, and I'll catch up with my mate when I'm there. So we're getting more of those multi-day trips now where people are actually coming to catch Murray Cod, which, why not? I've travelled to random places around the world to catch, like, one species, yeah. like, and been totally stoked that maybe I've caught three of that fish in the entire week. And I mean, it is, it's a funny one. Like I, I won't mention names, but there's quite a long-term rider in Australian fly fishing that told me one time, like, it's like, why would you go for Murray Cod? It's going to be too hard. People won't be into it. Well, that's what I was going to say to you. Out of those 80, I should probably just clarify. It wasn't that they were disgusted or, or opposed to fishing for the species. It was that it was just too hard. Mm. They didn't know how. Yeah. You know, and nowadays having lines that can turn over big flies and, and mm. having big flies are, and, and seeing people like you going out and catching so many, you're my inspiration. I mean, <laughs> obviously Cam and Katie, and I'll post a link to their podcast that I did when we were discussing the biology of Marie Cod. Mm. But watching you and just how many fish you're catching, it, it took me from thinking, oh, well, I don't know if I really want to, I don't have that much time. I don't know if I want to waste it fishing five days and maybe getting mm. a bite to seeing you and going, I can get, <laughs> I can get a couple of fish in a day if I, or like even a shot at a fish a day yeah. is, is worthwhile. Do you think a lot of that, of those 80 people, for example, it's just that it was just too hard at the time? I would guarantee that from that 80 people, some of them will be catching Murray Cotton fly now. Like I think 
there's a lot of great fly fishermen that I've been talking to lately that have been through that thing that I went through six years ago, being like, oh my gosh, I'm so embarrassed. How on earth did I ignore this? Totally, yeah. And like, I'm not afraid to say that because like, I just, at that's sort of the point I'm in. And I do sort of, you know, I feel lucky that I guess I have somewhat the time and resources to be able to go and explore some of these areas. And I've spent a lot of time in this past, probably two to three years particularly, trying to find areas that have easier to catch Murray Cotton fly. And I'm pretty honest with people if they want to book a guided day. I would normally say on an average day, you're probably going to get three to 10 fish eat the fly. Murray cod need a very well delivered strip strike. So I'm also honest after I tell them that that's how many fish will hit the fly, that zero to two is how many are probably landed on an average day for that river. Um, I've had days out there where the fish have just been on fire. The angler has not been. And we've had 20 exceptional eats of the fly nothing on the fish's part wrong and we've landed one or two fish um and that's just fishing that's fishing and it's a battle people go through if they've done a lot of trout fishing to learn the strip strike which we've all had that moment at some point where we've trout struck a fish we didn't want to trout strike yeah. <laughs> but that's probably an average sort of capture for your more frequented rivers of new south wales um i guess we've been exploring some other areas on private property and just lesser known areas and some of those rivers we've been having, like I'd, I'd honestly say an average day would be probably five to maybe 30 fish eating the fly. Um, and depending on the day, the angler and all that sort of thing, we've caught, we've had days where we've probably caught close to 30 for the day. And yeah, that comes down to a little bit of pressure, but it's also, I think there's certain rivers that are a better scenario for fly fishing. Fly fishermen like we like sight fishing. If possible, we like to sight fish. And people, Are you sight fishing for Murray Cod? We're doing that regularly now. Um, there's certain properties which we go to now, and I'm almost game enough to say that we will sight fish every single time. And this is sort of what we've been pitching a little bit more to people, that there's places, like, for example, the, the Macquarie, which I fish the most, and I'll talk about that a little bit because that's the one I grew up on. And last year, I reckon every day we went out, we at least sight fished one or two. But the year before, not so much. And I don't know if that's just because I'm looking for them now or they just the water's a little bit lower the last couple of years that I've been seeing them. But last year, I think we sight fished with clients four or five that were between a metre and a metre 20. Like these are just happily cruising along, exceptionally large fish that at that length, they probably weigh anything from 45 to 70 pounds, depending on how well conditioned. And they're just cruising along in the river and you have not seen people fall apart worse than... We did not land a single one of those fish with clients that we sight fished to. The biggest one we saw, I went back when we actually filmed our short film and I knew where he lived. We looked around all day. He wasn't there. I cast over his log where he was living in the night and I caught him. He was a metre 22. And that's one thing, I guess. The bigger fish typically do become a little bit nocturnal at times but at the same time like I say we have been seeing them swim around I just wouldn't be game enough to say April if I take you there tomorrow we're going to see it um, there are properties where if we went fishing tomorrow I would say 99.9 percent .9 chance we will probably sight fish between four to ten fish that day on that that place um, so in terms of a fly fishing scenario that's exciting because these sort of places, if they're clear water, they're a little bit more shallow. You know, we found one that we actually filmed during our Gudu uh, film, and it had a lot of sight fishing opportunities, but the fish weren't so big. They were like 30 centimetres, they were foot to two foot long. And essentially, the new place we've been going to, 
Uh, we caught one there recently. It was, I guess, three foot long, sight fished. We arrived at the pool. It's probably maybe 20 foot wide, if that, 15 foot wide. Uh, there's a Murray cod there swimming around. Uh, 25 pounds was the fish at that length. And it's just swimming around, happy as day, and it's got a smaller fish tail in it. And I said to the client, I was like, unfortunately, that smaller fish is probably going to attack your fly first. Fly went in. The big fish just came, like, clear as day, clear water, attacked his fly, and just for some reason didn't hook up. And weirdly, the Murray cod just kept swimming around for another 10 minutes. We tried several different flies. It would rush the fly, kind of buff it, wouldn't eat it. This is all happening in clear water. And then... I'd sort of given up, to be honest, because I thought, okay, this fish is just in some weird trance-like state and it just doesn't want to eat. We, um, I think then we tried another fly and randomly it just attacked it with full gusto and we landed that fish. Everything sight fished, watching it clear as day. And that sort of scenario is what we're excited about for fly fishing. I'll still happily go and fish some big water that's kind of a little bit off colour and throw around some big flies and surface poppers and, and hope for an eat. But when it comes to fly fishing for Murray Cod, it's pretty hard to beat that sight fishing element. You've literally got me thinking about my schedule and how (laughs) I'm supposed to make the next trip work. What about consumption? Historically, they used to eat a lot of Murray Cod. Is that something that the fisheries can sustain today? Yeah, like Murray Cod have gone through that sort of change of face in terms of what people think of them. And I guess we were recently part of a, a, a big international production and they did a lot of sort of looking into somewhat the commercial fishing of Murray Cod and, um, and the demise of numbers, particularly in those bigger rivers of the Murray-Darling Basin, uh, the Murray River, the Murrumbidgee River, uh, the Lachlan River, the Barwon River, the Darling River, these sort of rivers. And Murray Cod were commercially fished and they were fished heavily. And for many, many years they were just seen as a meat fish. And I think that has something to do with why a lot of Australians didn't sort of see them as a sport fish for a long time, because they really were seen as this fish that you would go and catch on bait, kill and eat. I, I've actually never eaten one. I kind of have just too much respect for the fish to kill one. Uh, there is that sense that I probably, maybe if one day one was deep hooked and it was bleeding, I didn't think it would survive, I probably should try the fish. But I, I really do respect the fish so much, I just can't stand the thought of killing one. People ask me how do they eat and I tell them they're horrible. Um, you know, you, you catch weird diseases from eating them. <laughs> That's not true. Apparently, they're pretty good to eat. They're supposed to be beautiful. Yeah, apparently they are. But I, I'd much rather tell people that they'll get some weird abscess if they eat it because then I know that you know, they won't <laughs> eat die. them. Yeah, definitely going to die. <laughs> but, but, um, but I have a question for you, though. Yeah. Interestingly enough, what you just said about the Murray cod not being a sport fish because they're for consumption. I am fascinated about the flathead in Australia. I mean, that is a consumption. That's a table fish. Mm. Why is that seen as a sporting fish? It's just one of those fish that... Aussies love like it's to be honest like let's be honest flathead's an ugly fish it's one of the ugliest things I've ever seen it looks yeah. like an overgrown sculpin most of the ones I've caught on fly was when I've been chasing permit or golden trevally on the flats and my fly is dragging behind me yeah. and I'm like oh I'm caught on a stick oh no I've caught a flathead, flathead yeah um, so why would they be revered as a sport fish whereas the Murray cod wouldn't be yeah, I don't know. Maybe saltwater community has taken that on a little bit quicker than the freshwater community did. Could be, I'm, I'm just a hypothesis, but um, it certainly is a revered fish. Like people love catching them, but people also look at flathead as a, a great fish to catch, but one they will happily take home and eat. Yeah. Um, there's a lot more, same with flathead, I think there's a lot more respect about the size of the fish and what they would or wouldn't kill. Murray cod just seemed to take a, a lot longer to go through that process. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Josh, besides just guiding, what else do you do? What is your job? You mentioned earlier that you'd had a quote-unquote real job, but you're, you work full-time in the fishing industry today. Yes, yeah. I, I mean, I make that joke because I absolutely love what I do, and I guess there is that sense that, you know, if you love it, it shouldn't be working. As much as we all know that if you want to work full-time in the fishing industry, there's plenty of stuff you have to do at times, which still isn't glamorous. Did it start as a guiding company? How did it start? It sort of more started of just casually sharing the adventures I was doing. And I think everyone assumed that I was full-time fishing back then anyway, because nobody's going to share photos of your job when you're traveling. They're going to share the photos of a marble trout in Slovenia or something in Argentina or something like that. So I, um, I essentially just got to the point where Aussie fly fisher was sharing all these photos from around the world. And I had, at the time, we were fishing locally as well. And it was a time when people didn't think there was much to catch locally. Uh, we had just been through a really bad drought up in our local mountains and not that many people were catching trout and it just sort of wasn't known. And we were doing really well because I've just got a lot of access to private property in those areas, having grown up there. And, and so I had a lot of people saying, can you take me fishing? Can you take me fishing? And so it kind of all morphed at the same time where I, while I was doing that job, I started sort of a part-time guiding business, taking people locally. And that sort of eventuated into some of the hosted trips that we, at the places I was lucky enough to visit and yeah, there really was, to begin with, not this kind of me sitting down, writing a business plan, thinking this is what Aussie Fly Fisher will be. Uh, the initial stages probably just, not by accident, but kind of just casually morphed together. And I got to a point where I was like, I actually really like doing this and it seems to be going well. Maybe I should be a little bit more on purpose and get a bit more business-minded about it. And... Yeah, so for the next few years, I continued to do the Aussie fly fisher thing and my other work, and I was pretty much just working two full-time jobs. So I, there was a point where I knew my, my corporate job was going to want us to move offices to another state. I didn't want to do that, and it was a perfect opportunity to leave with a payout and a redundancy, and I was like, well, if I don't do it now, I'll never do it. And that was about, well, pushing sort of four years ago now, I went full-time. Um, the photos start? Because you're one of the most spectacular photographers I, I, I know. <laughs> well, thank you for that, and I appreciate that. Um, yeah, like the photos, again, was sort of, I guess we were fishing a lot, and I really just wanted to kind of document the trips, and there was a photographer that came with us on a trip to New Zealand. That would have been maybe six, seven years ago. And I just remember at the end of the trip looking at his photos, and they were fantastic. And I remember just kind of looking at the crappy photos that I'd taken thinking, 
Man, and, and everyone says that, you know, like, oh, I'd love to be able to take photos like that. But I just felt like if I actually wanted to put that statement into action, I had to do something about it. And I really, it just sort of grew on me and became to the point that it is now that I really enjoy the photography of fishing as much as I do the fishing itself. And I mean, there's certain times where you're, you're fishing, you're just so in the zone where I'm just like, oh, damn, I've got to put down the rod. I've got to get up, get the camera, take a photo. But I'm just like, no, nah, I'm loving the fishing too much. But at the same time, I've learned to kind of, I guess, appreciate both and make them both work. And uh, yeah, I guess initially I just somewhat taught myself, just took a lot of photos. I was doing a lot of trips to nice places and that sort of forced me to take photos. I'd invite guys that were really good photographers out fishing that wanted to learn to fly fish and kind of, I guess, swap a bit of skills and, and learn from them. And um, and essentially just went through this phase of, like if I looked at my photos initially when I first got a DSLR and how I edited them, I, like I hate them. I'm, I'm like... Everyone goes through that phase of trying to find your style and all that sort of thing. But at the same time, I knew that, you know, if I wanted to make a step forward, I had to start somewhere. And for me, that was just buying a DSLR, sort of learning as much as I could from different people and, and somewhat have been just sort of self-taught from that point onwards, I guess. How much of your success do you think is based on your photos and the quality of images you're able to put out for marketing? I, I think it's important to be able to tell the story and... I'm like for me the photography side and I you know I do a lot of writing for different magazines as well and and I enjoy doing that I think if you can't tell the story and it sort of comes back a little bit to maybe some of those guys that probably feel a little bit left behind these days if people aren't being told that story regularly they kind of just sort of lose interest and I feel like you know, photography or videos or even just writing and all those sort of things. It's a bigger picture way than, I guess, Instagram or social media because you're still, you know, I think Instagram is that daily gratification, but being able to tell a bigger story is an important thing as well and being able to take photos that just aren't that hero shot. I mean, our Instagram is a lot of hero shots and that sort of thing because for our guiding and all that kind of vibe, people like that and it makes them think, oh, I want to catch that fish, I'll come and book a day. But in terms of like magazines and other sort of areas to write I feel that having nice photos and telling a good story is important for people to want to join that adventure with you and what you're doing and and essentially where our business is you know it's it's selling guiding it's selling trips it's creating media and you want people to be on that journey and I, I think the photography is really important for that and from our point of view I've sort of focused on that a lot I mean I have guys too I'll come on a trip and I can think of one scenario we were in New Zealand we we're catching kingfish on the flats and this guy's like, I don't want any photos, I don't want any photos. And then he caught a really nice one. I was like, I'd really like to take a photo because I just think this is a nice fish. And I think you'll kind of, you know, you'll regret not having the shot. Anyway, I forced him into a photo and we took the photo. At the end of the trip, he's the first guy that's like, so you got that photo, you're going to send it to me? <laughs> People, whether they agree to it or not, really like a nice photo. And I think it's important for that memory of the trip. And, and I think it's important for people that maybe at that stage of life or, or whatever that can't be on those trips to sort of feel like they can live it as well, that you can see beautiful photos or videos or whatever of nice places that they may or may not be able to get to, but it sort of keeps you going. Well, you mentioned something that, that I'm really passionate about, which is obviously storytelling and keeping history alive. Historically, before all this social media madness, they used to pass on stories verbally. Do you think that, A, we're losing that, and B, that it's becoming diluted or wishy-washy because now we're telling stories with photos which maybe aren't necessarily accurate or depicting the entire story and all the hard times and all the things that mm. do go wrong? Or maybe the reason why we like verbal stories is because 
they highlight the bad moments and we don't, it's harder to highlight those really raw bad moments in photos mm. than it is to tell the story. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's a hard one these days. Like for example, if I put up a photo on Instagram and this has happened plenty of times and I know that plenty of people could sort of side with this. And quite often if we put up a photo, let's say it's a Murray cod in a river that we don't want to, you know, mention the location or whatever. Maybe we just said, you know, Jim caught a nice Murray cod on fly today. You'll get guys that sort of jump on there like, oh, what river was it? What fly are you using? Um, you know, what was the temperature? What was the barometer doing? And that's all well and good. But then on the opposite spectrum, which I find really funny, quite often I'll do a post and maybe I do say like, you know, Jim came fishing today. He caught a Murray cod. He caught it on a cod snack tied by John Everett. Uh, we caught it in the Macquarie River. And like sometimes I'll just choose to be really detailed because there's nothing to lose. And then I'll get messages of like, oh, where'd you catch it? Or what was it on? I'm like, this is really weird. I've actually detailed this information today. But I realize even if I'm looking at Instagram, I'm just like boom, 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 scrolling through fast, fast, fast. People quite often actually aren't even reading the information. And so in terms of has it been lost, I think some people aren't really wanting to read it because I see that. Like people ask me questions that are so directly answered. Um, we had one the other day, like I posted a photo of a trout. It's been really hot in Australia the last few, few weeks. We haven't fished certain areas just because it's a little bit too hot. And I posted a trout and someone said, why would you be taking a photo of a fish out of the water on a 30 degrees day? And I was, the caption said, um, some springtime brown trout caught with our, um, our guide Mickey down in the snowy mountains. Spring was six weeks ago, but like someone was quick enough to kind of sort of take the attack foot before actually reading the caption. Before reading the story, which is, it's literally judging a book by its cover. Which is a little bit hard. And, and I suppose when it comes to say a magazine these days, which might tell a bigger story or a TV show or something like that, people can easily cut and edit, whether it's today or 30 years ago, the information they want to tell people in that story. Mm-hmm. In essence, I try and be very honest with our, our trips and, and what people might expect. And Murray Kite, I'll sometimes talk people out of them. Like, do you want to catch a fish that could be hard? Are you sure? It's going to be hot. You might be walking through a valley that, you know, it's not the optimum condition sometimes. Yeah. Um, because I'd much rather people know the honest story behind it. And, you know, sometimes I, I wrote a, an article recently about fishing up on um, the east coast of Australia and I mentioned that the first trip I went there, we got washed out. We didn't fish at all. The next trip we went there was extremely windy. We couldn't go to the flats. The last trip we went there was pretty good, but the tide had moved on to the point we wanted it to be. And then we, you know, we caught some nice fish over that period. But um, the editor of the magazine just said to me, he's like, oh, this is like the most honest East Coast article I've read in ages. Thank you for actually being honest. Because mm-hmm. sometimes you can read through that kind of, we went there, we caught amazing fish, we were awesome, it was amazing the end. Everything's in brevity. And I would have thought that the storytelling aspect of our, or or the importance of storytelling was dead or that our generation maybe didn't want to hear it. But when you go and you watch, say these film tours and film festivals, everybody is is sick to death of seeing just fish porn. You know, Mm. they, they want to see the story. They want to be engaged by the characters and learn the background. Something like this podcast, for example. I mean, there's no visual here, and, and mm. there's no quick fix. You sit down for an hour of the show. Mm. It's storytelling. Mm. And, you know, people like to take the piss out of my social media, and they're like, oh, they, they think that's my job. I mean, this podcast, <laughs> my social media following pales in comparison to the, the reach of this podcast, mm. which tells me people are interested in stories mm. and not just glamour shots and not just how-tos. Yeah. So do you think the storytelling aspect of things 
is dead, or do you think it's more important now than ever that we adapt to telling the story with social media because that's so obviously, unfortunately, the way this world is Yeah, happening? I think the story just has to be told across several mediums to, to be completely reached to the, the audience. I guess different generations probably approach the information in a different way. That was my next question. And I wasn't going to take it down this road, but I'm going to ask you. Are you finding that a lot of those instant gratification people or the people who want instant information now and they don't want to read to get it, are you finding that they're younger? Um, I mean, a lot, but not always. I think it's just people are busier and busier. And, mm-hmm. and we're all kind of suffering that busy sort of <laughs> vibe. Like it's, you actually have to tell yourself to stop and slow down. And I mean, the last week, as I said to you, my wife's been overseas for the first time since our our second son was born, Judah, and, and he's such a chill bloke, but for the first time, mum's away in, you know, eight, nine months of his life, has kind of forced me just to be like completely at home, completely attend, you know, tending to his needs, completely just sort of slowing down and sort of doing a complete mind shift in my world of who I need to care for and what I need to do in this week. And that actually, I, I was just thinking about it last night, I was realising how much your mind actually changes where it's sitting when you purposely slow down or do something that's very different than the other maybe 51 weeks of your year when you know we're doing stuck in the business and not that I don't care for my son the other 51 um, <laughs> weeks I should say but um, but you know what I mean like it's a completely different thing and I realize how fast-paced the world is these days by having those sort of weeks yeah. and yes definitely there's you know, there's that thought that the younger generation may just want that instant gratification. And and I think, too, that there just needs to be a few guys that would stand up and mentor these people as well. Like, I mean, I've, we get a lot. Like, people might, and you would too, like, people say, oh, hey, um, I'm fishing, I'm catching amazing fish, my mates love what I'm doing, how do I get a sponsor? And I normally just take that as like, okay, obviously he's probably not looking at it from the right angle, but I just sort of take it as a legitimate question. I usually write back something like, well... You know, I tell you what you should do. If there's brands that you really like, gather up all the national magazines you've written for. Make sure, put that in a file so they can see that. Um, get together, you know, like all the reach that you have via your social media. Tell them about the upcoming projects you've got going on. Tell them about people you've partnered with in the past and different things you're working with. And put all that, you know, put yourself a bit of a fly fishing resume together and present it to that company. Very quickly, this kid that obviously just started fly fishing has nothing to offer. He's like thinking, oh, this is the first time anyone's told me that I need to offer anything from my side. This is a bit awkward. But it actually gives them something to think about. They're like, oh, maybe I don't write any articles. Maybe I don't have a social media following. Maybe I don't have a legitimate company. Maybe I, maybe I don't have anything to offer. And I'm not saying that people don't have anything to offer at that stage, but people need to work towards something instead of just being like, you little jerk, how dare you think you're worthy of sponsorship I feel like I actually feel like more companies need to have direction for people to get to that point. Like, let's have great ambassadors of the sport, but let's have these people knowing what they need to achieve to get there. And just because you fly fish and a couple of mates think you're cool isn't quite that. But actually helping these younger people sort of get into this um, that space, if that's something they want to do, it's you know, like you ask a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? And maybe, yeah, let's be cliche and say a fireman. If he actually wants to be a fireman, People, and he looks down the road of becoming a fireman, people, he's going to look down the different roads that he should take to get there. When people say, I'd like to be a professional fly fisherman, well, they're probably first laughed at because people think, does that exist? Um, second, they just it's this weird sort of like shunning them away, whereas I kind of think actually with these younger guys, if they, are, 
you know, if they're legitimate, they'll go down that road. They'll actually start thinking, oh, maybe I should work on my photography. I should work on my writing. Maybe I should help out, you know, with some of these courses that this company's doing. Or maybe I should help out there. Or maybe I should work on my casting. Or I should, you know, just actually take the path to get to where I want to be. Whereas I don't feel like there's a lot of that in the fly fishing scene. And so I know we bagged out a little bit on the younger generation and I'm 33, so it sounds a bit weird to try and put myself in the older generation. I'm not. But at the same time, I feel like if there was better sort of direction and mentors to be able to help these guys get there, we would find really good people in the industry that are the right people that are in it for the right reasons. Because as soon as, if I apply for a job and I give my resume to that job, I don't give that resume with no information on that, right? Like I apply for the job. I'm like, this is where I've worked before. This is what I've done. Uh, these are my skills. This is where I feel like, you know, I can offer to your company. Tell me, I'd like to think of what companies have received those sort of letters from these younger generation. Um, and if they receive one, they probably take to it pretty well. Like they're like, oh, wow, this kid's like, he's done this. He wants to do this. He's asking, can we have some help there? Essentially... I don't see why a partnership, like sponsorship is a weird word. Like if anyone's got a legitimate thing going with a company, it's a partnership, you know, you're working together and you would approach that like you would a good job that you want. When somebody writes back and says, I'm sorry, you didn't get the job. You don't write back, you know, giving them every swear word under the sun. Normally people would just, you know, thanks for considering it, da, da, da. In the same way that if I was asking for a brand to sponsor me or partner with me, I wouldn't not respond to them just because they said no I'd say well thanks for considering it great to hear from you and you know um, thanks for giving me some things to work towards like I know that's a weird side tangent but I I feel like the young guys sometimes get a little bit of a smashing without any direction look I'm going to be totally honest with you 95 (laughs) percent of the people who talk smack about me online are 25 years old and under (laughs) all of these years of doing things to try to perfect my craft or Mm. become a better writer or a better, most importantly, a better teacher. Mm. Those aspects of my career are not even, they don't even know, these young guys don't even know that those aspects Mm. exist. Mm. And yeah, I'm 36, you know, so I'm also still really young, but I talk to a lot of older people, especially on the show. Mm. And it's really off-putting to them because their career is being stripped from them so fast. Mm. They're shutting down and they're turning around and being like, you know what? I want nothing to do with it. I'm Mm. just, I'm out. Mm. And that's scary to me because as storytellers, we need to have these stories to stick around. Mm. We need these people to stick around. Um, I don't know how to access these young guys. Mm. They don't listen to me. Are you finding that you're more accepted? Um, I mean, that's a hard question to answer. Like, we, you know, we get a lot of young guys coming along to different courses. And I'm actually, you know, I'm really encouraged about how many young guys want to get into fly fishing and that would contact us. And, I mean, we run a thing um, every year, which we just, we call it our Youth Academy. And we sort of, once again, we sort of look for kids that are willing to have a good crack. And we put out they essentially have to offer their fly fishing resume or their fishing resume. They have to send us some photos. They have to fill out the form. I mean, maybe this would sort of be news to them, but if the form arrives with one-word answers, they're probably not going to be in the running to win the, the prize. Like the prize every year is usually getting kitted out from top to bottom, rods, reels, waders, boots, sunglasses, and, you know, all of our partnerships sort of support that. And, you know, we will fly them from wherever they are to wherever we do the training. We have like a, you know, last year we did in New Zealand, Australia. This year we're doing a big one in the Snow Mountains. And essentially, like, you see some kids apply to this and they just pour their entire heart into it. And I think, you know, like, these are kids that really want to be involved and really want to do it. And I'm not saying the other kids don't want to be involved, but 
it's sort of that element of if you want something good, you actually have to work for it. Like nobody that's full-time in the fly fishing industry, nobody got it handed to them. And like, you know, people joke about that kind of trust fundy sort of kids that sort of exist out there sort of vibe. But you'll find that people last and that make an influence in the fly fishing industry have worked really hard to get there. And they've sacrificed tons of things to make that happen. And I think getting that message across to the younger guys is sometimes a harder one. And sometimes people just have to go on their own journey to get there. And Do you think it's hard to explain it to them or have them grasp the concept because they literally don't know that concept exists? I look at my own daughter and I'm like, am I going to work you so hard that you have no, that the rest of your peers are not going to understand you, yeah, you know, yeah. your, your, your mentality? I'm, I'm nervous as a mother and as mm. a parent yourself, do you get a little bit, do you ever get scared for the future? It's a, yeah, like, I don't know. When I was, like I talked about before, when I was eight, nine, ten, we jumped in our Series 2 Land Rover and drove down the paddock for like almost a weekend and came back to our parents for meals. And it sounds kind of cliche and lame to say, but it just is a bit different now. And it sucks that you've got to kind of feel like everything's in a safety bubble and all that kind of thing when you have kids. And and I really try and not be like that. I mean, my sons are two and a half and um, eight months old. But at this sort of stage, I guess, you know, you're obviously very protective of your kids. And, but at what point, you know, would I let them do that? When they're eight, would I like them just to disappear into the bush and come back for meals? Because it seems so okay to do that 25 years ago. Whereas now it's just like, there's so much, it's almost like all this fear in the world. So people are in this bubble and there's that sense of, I don't know, maybe that makes people take less risks and then therefore people think they need to be given more because you know, well I don't want to take the risk so therefore the solution is to be given that I never thought about that I, I don't know like I'm not <laughs> I'm not two people in talking about being yeah. parents right now we'll have to have this conversation in 20 years yeah exactly but um it like when you think about it like that it's I don't know it just is slightly different and I really want my kids to have that sort of outdoors upbringing you know they may not be fly fishermen or whatever but they damn well better be but, um, no, but um, you know, like, I, I think I really want them to have the chance to enjoy the outdoors. Like, I remember in school, even when I grew up, like, we'd have, like, a year eight or year nine camp. And, I mean, I loved the outdoors. Like, it was camping, fishing, forward driving, motorbikes, whatever. I loved it. And kids had come to this, like, year eight camp, like, so how do I set up a tent? I've never been camping. And I just, I actually just felt really sorry for the kid. I was like, oh, my gosh, you're 14, you've never been camping? This, like it was a foreign thing to me growing up in the bush. And so I kind of think for, for my boys, I, you know, I really want to make that time to take them camping, to take them fishing and, and hunting or, and, and four driving and motorbikes and all that sort of thing and have chances that they can, not badly hopefully, but you know, get out there and you know, get in the mud and get in the dirt and hurt themselves from time to time and experience good things. Because I feel like you know, just there is a lot of push to kind of, just protect your kids and keep them in that bubble. And I, obviously I want the best for my kids and I want them to be totally safe, but I want them to experience the real things that we enjoy that is the outdoors. So this mentorship program that you have, is it a, is it like a week long thing? Is it, is it, does it take place over several months over the weekend? How does it work? Yeah, I guess at the moment what we've been doing is essentially we have like the lead into it and then we select the kids like this year we've got four kids two from New Zealand two from Australia come in and they would sort of I guess learn a whole bunch of things about fly fishing learn basically whatever they want in terms of the fly fishing sense 
and just we do it as a week sort of long thing generally purely because I fund it all myself we have you know the likes of like Loop and Patagonia and Coaster and um, Scientific Anglers and all these sort of guys give us all the gear which we hugely appreciate for all the guys and then we sort of cover the cost of I guess all the logistics and all that to to have these guys there and essentially I mean it's that thought that you can't I mean, we would love to do it for so many more kids, but we we sort of feel that if this is a little impact we can make on a, a few guys' life that may go on and do you know great things in fly fishing, um, and just really enjoy getting out there. And you know, I guess it's the little we can do. And so that's sort of where where it's at for us at the moment. And you know, it's great. Like the guys we had last year, I've just seen those guys out there fishing tons more than they were, um, and just really passionate to get out there. And and I guess a part of the program we tell them as well that you know, like you've been given all this you actually have to go and find a couple of young guys in your immediate world and get them out there, teach them a bit of fly fishing, take them on. And, and I guess that hope that it sort of, you know, has that bit of a chain reaction. And, and I, you know, like I, I do feel like there's a lot more younger guys. I mean, I see it in Australia, a lot more younger guys that are just really good guys that are getting into it because they love the sport, love being outdoors, that are wanting to fly fish. And, and essentially, if we can foster that in any way, we will. I mean, it's... Plenty of great generations are out there fly fishing in Australia, but for when I grew up, there just wasn't really that many young people getting into it. Like I, I mean, I loved, I, I think I was like 14, 15 going to my local fly club in Bathurst and just harassing them, like, you know, for information, for anyone that had a license that could drive us to rivers. And, and, you know, I so appreciate those, those blokes taking us out there and, and sharing information and that sort of thing. But there was, for a long, long time, I just didn't know another me that was young and out there wanting to do it. Same as you. I mean, and I didn't have Google back Mm. then. I went to the library. Yeah. And I asked people. And a lot of people gave me answers, and a lot of people didn't answer my questions. But what just hit me in the the face as you're speaking is, that's why it hurts so much. Like you and, like, so many of us, we tried so hard to open these doors and give this information and be there for this younger generation – and then to have so many of them turn around and be so, not even thankless. No one knows. I don't. No one owes me anything. But to be so so far on the other end of the scale and be so hateful towards the people who have tried to open doors for them. Mm. That's why it hurts so much. I never understood why it hurts so much because look, I have thick skin, but I'm also a human, <laughs> and that's what it is. Thank you. I now realize why it bothers me so much because we tried so hard to open doors for this next generation. And so many of them don't appreciate it. Now, so many of them do as well. And that's why your program is helping these people. But But I I think too, like I I think there is that element of there is a ton of young guys out there just love fishing, love doing it. And I guess, I mean, I would like that sponsorship thing to be this cloud that's kind of removed from their vision at that stage because it's. It is this weird sort of cloud that hovers over them thinking, I'm only a good fisherman if someone sponsors me. Um, I'm only a good fisherman if I have my 10% code to flash up on Instagram or whatever that kind of stuff is. But this is not true. And it's not really about being a good fisherman. And I mean, I'll get, sometimes I'll get weird messages and people say, hey, would love to go fishing with you. Would love to see how good you are. I was like, that's a weird thing to send. Like, that's actually not why I fish. I don't class myself as the world's greatest fisherman to anyone. I class myself as someone that is lucky enough to have sort of being able to work my way into a you know a business that I enjoy running that enjoys still loves fishing which is the business we operate in and loves being with people that are just relaxed and have that same sort of outlook being a good guide is primarily about communication and understanding how to keep the energy going in the right direction oh yeah catching the fish I know this sounds cliche catching the fish <laughs> is obviously 
an expectation to some degree, but it's a bonus. Mm. Being a good guide is so much more than just being a great fisherman. Oh, totally, totally. And it's, I think there's that weird sort of perspective that people may have as maybe, you know, someone online looking at someone else that gets to fish in different places and they'd like to do that. And they think, oh, they must be that because people think they're a good fisherman. I was like, well, no, it's not really about that. It's like, I guess, running a fly fishing business or being someone, anyone in the fly fishing industry that's full-time is so many different facets and so many different sort of things to network and fishing, you know, and being decent at it is obviously a part of it. But like we talked about before, being able to tell the story, being able to, you know, network in the right places for the right reasons and, you know, being, I guess, just being open and honest to people as well. Like it's not just about I'm on Instagram, I promoted this rod is what you should use Therefore, you know, that's what about, that's what a good fisherman has been about. And I think that's where the cloud exists right now with young people, where they have this element that if I have this many followers on Instagram, whether I buy them or I earn them or whatever, companies will give me gear. And those companies didn't give them gear. So maybe, I don't know, maybe there's a weird aggression that comes from that, that, oh, well, how come they got it? I'm a better fisherman than them in their mind or whatever. And it's just irrelevant. <laughs> like, I personally think, like, maybe that's my point of view because I'm just not really a records competition sort of guy or whatever, but I just feel that kind of stuff is irrelevant. Fly fishing is about getting out there in the outdoors, enjoying it, being with people that are like-minded, being in places that kind of fuel the soul. To me, as soon as someone's, like, competitive or they mention that I need to be using this class line to make that fish legitimate, I'm just like that's really boring and I don't want to talk to you because that's just, that's not my aspect of fly fishing. I just, fly fishing is about enjoying a good time and, and getting out there. Let's talk a little bit about the film projects that you've done because you just did a recent one in Glorious Bastards. Where was that film? Yeah. So, um, that was a film by Yako Lucas and his, Bunch of merry men, uh, Keith Rosinus and Christian Petoris. <laughs> but you were one of those merry men, weren't you? Um, yeah, so I will, in terms of the filming, I mean, I do like a little bit here and there, but normally from the filming side, I know that I'm not extremely great at filming. So I normally, like we have, uh, I have a guy, Josh Trednick, who's done quite a bit of our filming for us. And I'll typically hire someone to come and film for us. So to be fair, like it's just, even that, it can be hard to find someone that's just quite good, quite humble to come and do that sort of stuff. Um, and Josh did a, a great bunch of work for us uh, the last sort of year or so, and he's gone and got himself a full-time job, which is inconvenient. But um, And so essentially on that one, up in, we're up in the Wessel Islands. It's a place certainly where people have gone before and caught some fish of interest to us, and that is quite new to that area was that we asked permission from Terry, the Aboriginal traditional landowner, if we could walk the flats and, and fish it in a way that I guess nobody ever had permission to do so before. And so we've got uh, Phoenix One is actually stunning mothership. It's about a 12-hour steam. We head up onto the Wessel Islands there. It's luxury beyond luxury. Like, it's one of the best service sort of operations I've been on. We went there uh, the year before to sort of check it out, and they were... Um, doing a little bit of conventional, a little bit of fly. This coming year, it's, I believe it's kind of fully booked for 2019, getting that way for 2020. And it's just this absolutely stunning location in the middle of nowhere, beautiful white sandy flats with block eye permit, with annex permit. Um, so your two Indo-Pacific permit species are available in the same spot. And as per the name of the film, Glorious Bastards, 
uh, they have the blue bastard there. Once again, a fish that's been well known by Australians for a long time and plenty of guys have been out there catching them well before us. And um, But internationally, not really a fish that's known so well. And, and so the guys were particularly interested in that. They're a tricky sort of fish, and I guess it kind of, as their name suggests, um, they are a bit of a bastard. And they're, they're, that sort of, they're a bit like a trigger fish, I guess you can compare them to. Like, you can put the good cast out there, they you know, lose distraction, they go the other way, or they follow it all the way and then don't eat it. And and they can just be a frustrating fish at times to catch. I've done several trips to great locations to try and catch some blue bastards and hooked a couple. Um, And I guess that's the other element. They do pull like a freight train and they'll head straight towards the the first bit of reef or rock. On this trip, we, I guess we were catching them to the point that by midweek, we're like, okay, I don't need to cast any more blue bastards because there's just... They're like a dream fish of mine. Yeah. Well, I mean, they are a beautiful fish, just iridescent glowing blue. And um, I guess that's the thing though. The Wessels has the blue bastards. It has the added distraction of two species of permit. Mm -hmm. And queenfish and barramundi and GTs and and all the other good stuff that people know as well. Are there crocs up there? There is the odd crocodile. Yaku, quite a funny story actually. So I was showing the guys that if, because there was quite a few sharks um, smaller sort of sharks that would be on some of the flats and not scary just putting it out there because I know everyone thinks that they're immediately going to be attacked by a croc, a croc or a shark when they come to Australia but um, if you cast a popper at these sharks they eat it like a GT and they just go you know just go like the clappers and just um, I, I cast one out and I you know hit the popper and this shark just mauled it and eventually came off and then Yaku jumped down and he's like oh there's one over there so he goes running towards it to cast like ah like, I don't think that one's a sh- uh, Yes, that one's definitely a crocodile. Yep, don't, don't run at that one. Um, it was probably only about two metres long, and we were in very shallow water. And to be honest, it was just scared by us because those, there's not that many crocodiles there, and the ones that are there are very flighty. Like, we're still very careful around, you know, the areas that we wade are very shallow. They're very clear. You can easily see everything for miles and know whether there's something there or not. If you get into a deeper channel, there's no way that you'd get out. But yeah, it is a beautiful location. It's, I mean, there's another fish, um, the black spotted tusk fish, that's uh, quite a popular Aussie flat species as well. And uh, we didn't catch any with the boys on their filming trip, but they have caught them there previously. And I think, yeah, they were just a bit funny when we were up there last time. But uh, another great Aussie flats fish that's becoming quite popular that, you know, Aussie guys have caught for many years. And it, I think that's what Australia has to offer, just these you know, amazing fish that sort of can be likened to things that they might have caught before, whether it's permit or trigger fish or GTs and things like that. But that same flats experience can be had in Australia. For the most of it, it's completely untouched. And there's a whole bunch of other awesome species that pull hard, that are tricky, that are different, that people can add to their species list. And I mean, that's why I'm just so passionate about what Australia has to offer because I know that we have plenty of new things and you know like I'll go and catch a GT any day of the week and we can catch them in Australia and I'll be stoked to do so but at the same time it's great that you can catch other things and when I say untouched I don't mean that maybe nobody's never been there I just mean that it's like very infrequent and it's almost never talked about. What's your long-term plan? Well I guess for at the moment Aussie Fly Fisher when I first started the business it's sort of a funny one. Like people, I guess to say from the start, some people think that Aussie Fly Fisher was a weird name that I gave myself. Not really. Like Aussie Fly Fisher is our business name. And I guess initially I was just doing everything by myself and it gets to the point where that's just too crazy. These days we have three extra guides in our team as well. So we cover 
um, different areas and different things. And in terms of the long-term goal, like I'm personally doing very little trout guiding myself anymore. Um, I am doing still a lot of the Murray Cod stuff, as is Mickey, our guide down in Canberra, Snow Mountains. And we are trying to build that cod side a lot more, which is great to see. And that's certainly grown a lot. In the past, you know, I'd get a whole bunch of trout fishing inquiries and maybe one cod. Whereas now, this time of year particularly, I'm seeing like every day there's guys that want to go cod fishing um, and then there'll be the odd trout one that normally at the moment, if someone's local, I'll sort of say, well, it's a little bit warm. We should wait to March, April. If someone's visiting, they desperately want to go. There's certainly some places that are cooler that we can take them, but it's great to see the cod side growing. I, I guess for our business, I just, you know, we are growing a lot more in the travel sector. We're doing a lot more sort of hosted trips to different places and and even just wanting to build more trips in Australia and that sort of thing as well. And we've done quite a bit of that in New Zealand, working with local guides over there. And just those sort of trips that aren't quite epic lodge trips that you need to fork out 10 grand, but you could go away for three or four days for $1,500 or something like that and, and have a great time in a, you know, a remote destination or a, or a different place or something that you might not have access to because it's private property and we've sort of organised, you know, being able to take clients there and that sort of thing, it definitely gives people a greater experience. So building somewhat our guiding has sort of always been the core of our business, but even building our travel, we just have a lot more people that want to do those trips, whether they're guys coming in internationally to come and fish in Australia, to go up to the Wessel Islands or somewhere or Gladstone or Exmouth or something like that, or getting, you know, groups that might want to go to Argentina. Like we normally go to Argentina once a year, places like Mongolia, we run a trip every two years. Um, you know, South Pacific, Christmas Islands, Tahiti, this sort of thing. New Zealand is obviously a big one for us over the summer because somewhat our hottest period, which is a little bit quieter here, is usually their peak period. So for us, our growth is is somewhat in um, our guiding and travel, which has always been the core of our business. And personally as well, like I, I really, you know, all the guys that are involved with our business, I'm always supporting their growth in terms of the media, like how can we, be, you know, better their photography and writing and things like that. And I really do want, if someone said, what did I want for the guys that work with me? I'd I'd say I want them to be better guides than me. I want them to be better photographers than me. I want them to be better writers than me. Because that to me is just, you know, if I can pour more into the guys that work with with me, that's that's a success. I don't, I've never felt like I need to be that kingpin or whatever. Like I totally would love just people that are like-minded to work with us, people that are passionate about the outdoors, the fish, the places, and see the growth in them as well. Um, so I mean, essentially, the media side is something we're doing a lot more of. I totally need a full-time media guy that's just a gun on video, photography, design. That's going to be a wild plug if that's in there. If you feel like you're that guy, hit us up. <laughs> but um, how do you feel about the likelihood that at least one of those guys is more than likely to leave and start his own thing and essentially become a competitor? People people ask that all the time, and any. Anyone can do what they want. My point of view on that is to make it so good that you don't want to leave. Um, And that's, I mean, I'd hope they feel that way. And that's certainly the way that I try and pitch it that, you know, like I, the guys get to go on trips with us overseas. The guys, you know, I'm all, I do my best to make sure they're looked after in every facet, I guess. And if they felt like they wanted to leave and do something for themselves, I guess I can't really stop them. It's, you know, it's disappointing because you, you work so hard to, um, you know, to partner with people and, and somewhat you kind of pour out, I guess, the, the information of your business and the spots and the places and the contacts and all that. But it is, you know, you can't really control people and, and that can happen. And, 
you know, I, I feel like when people leave and it's on bad terms and all that kind of thing, it, it I, I suppose I've only got to look at myself and be like, maybe I didn't make it interesting enough for them. Um, and that's probably how I challenge myself in the future with the people that we have involved with our business that I know sometimes people have better, bigger and better things and, and that's great. And sometimes people, you know, maybe the fishing lifestyle isn't for them. It's been away from home. It's not amazing money and all those kind of things in general. But it is somewhat quality of life. It's what you want to, if that's what you want to do and you want to be out there having great experiences, there's no better thing. And for me, that's why I do it. I love doing it. I absolutely miss my boys and my wife when I'm away and, you know, we make that work as best as possible. And that's part of having the other guys on board too. Like I really want to see them be able to run the trips to like Argentina and Christmas Island and New Zealand. And, and we've already sort of got that in place. You know, this year we've got, you know, all of our team running trips in different places, which is really cool to see. Like I love being able to involve guys that are just passionate about it. I'm not that concerned with someone that comes to me and tells me they're the absolute best guy, they're the best fisherman, please hire me. Like for us, it's more about, you know, can we work as a team? Are we humble? Can we all take criticism? Can we work together in a way that's, you know, moving forward? And I, I just feel like that's the only way it can work. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 